Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, We Are Not Wearing Helmets, poems by Cheryl Boyce Taylor. We Are Not Wearing Helmets is a collection of political love poems rendered through the eyes of Boyce Taylor, an immigrant living in New York City. For many women of color, aging in America means experiencing a lack of proper medical treatment, inhumane living conditions, poor nutrition, and often isolation. These poems challenge the injustices of ageism, racism, and oppression with rage, forgiveness, honor, and endurance. Listeners receive a 20% discount on We Are Not Wearing Helmets or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Kim Fu's Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century, a collection of 12 stories in which the strange is made familiar and the familiar strange. Says Lucy Tan, Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century is for the adventurous reader, someone willing to walk into a story primed for cultural critique and suddenly come across a plot for murder, or to consider the dangers of sea monsters alongside those posed by 21st century ennui. Each story is spectacularly smart, hybrid in genre, and bold with intention. The monsters here are not only fantastical figures brought to life in hyper-reality, but also the strangest parts of the human heart. This book is as moving as it is monumental. Lesser Known Monsters of the 21st Century is out now from Tin House. So I'm excited to finally be able to share this conversation with Gabrielle Seville. I say finally because we've been in contact for some years now, having a back and forth about having a conversation, having this conversation, which for so long was notional and aspirational, something we would do sometime in the future, but which finally, in the now of February 22nd, 2022, we can all engage with in much the way so much of Seville's writing is in engagement with the quote-unquote thick present, to borrow a term from Donna Haraway, a different form of temporality of now that involves ancestry and inheritance but also a sense of futurity of the lives of the people we are the future ancestors of ourselves. Because of this different sort of now in Gabrielle's writing, both her work and our conversation names and lifts up those she is indebted to and those she writes alongside. And so an unusual abundance of names and books are mentioned in this conversation. And I've collected them within this episode's bookshop in case you want to seek them out after listening today. The link for it is in today's show notes, as well as the email that goes out to supporters of the show. One of the people we talk about today in depth is the poet Wanda Coleman, a poet who figures prominently in Gabrielle's latest book, The Deja Vu. And for the bonus audio archive, 
Gabrielle talks about and reads one of her favorite of Wanda's poems, one of her American sonnets. This joins a wealth of supplementary material from Nikki Finney reading from Lorraine Hansberry's diaries to Miriam Chancy reading from, analyzing, and teaching us from a passage of Jamaica Kincaid to readings by Kava Akbar, Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, Douglas Kearney, and others of their own work. This is only one of the possible benefits of becoming yourself a listener supporter of Between the Covers. To find out more about this and the other benefits of joining the community that keeps this little train that could going forward, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers and check it all out. And now for today's episode with performance writer and performance artist, Gabrielle Seville. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Gabrielle Seville, is a black feminist performance artist originally from Detroit, Michigan. Seville went to the University of Michigan, where she studied creative writing and comparative literature, and then to NYU for both her master's and doctorate, where her dissertation from body to nation focused on the poetry of black women in the United States, Canada, and Haiti. Her academic concentrations were Black feminist theory, African-American literature, and experimental world poetry. She has taught at Bard and for the Bard College Prison Initiative at McAllister College, and for 13 years as a tenured professor in English, women's studies, and critical studies of race and ethnicity at St. Catharines University in Minnesota. From 2013 to 2016, she was a tenured professor of performance at Antioch College in Ohio, and most recently she's been teaching as part of the MFA program in creative writing and the BFA program in critical studies at CalArts. Seville is known as much for her performance art as she is for what she calls her performance writing or performance memoir. She has premiered over 50 original solo and collaborative performance works around the world, from Mexico to Puerto Rico to Ghana, to Zimbabwe, to Montreal, to Chicago. Since 2014, she's been performing Say My Name, an action for 270 abducted Nigerian girls as an act of embodied remembering. Her first two books of performance writing 
are her 2017 debut, Swallow the Fish, and her 2019 experiments, Enjoy, both out from Civil Coping Mechanisms. Seville is also the winner of the Goldline Press Nonfiction Chapbook Competition. This 2021 chapbook, Ghost Gestures, was picked by Banu Kapil for the prize. Kapil says in her citation, Ghost Gestures is a complex work that starts to oscillate the more it gets to what it is about. It creates an experience of world contact through micro-movements, kinesthesia, the body's trace as much as its ongoing being. Lateral shifts appear on the page as this writer engages with race, mimicry, migration, and desire as core themes. So rapidly that the chapbook's distension, the way this writing changes what a chapbook is, becomes a part of what it is to read it. We'll be discussing Ghost Gestures in relation to her just-released new full-length book, The Deja Vu, Black Dreams and Black Time from Coffeehouse Press. Publishers Weekly in its starred review says, In this radiant work, poet and performance artist Seville pays tribute to a legacy of Black artists while contending with the twin moments of pandemic and uprising after the murder of George Floyd. She creates a swirling collage of visual art, poetry, and prose that reflects her life as a Black creative, reckoning with the repetitive nature of social crises in America. Taken together, her musings act as a radical reclamation of place and identity and challenge the quote-unquote pandemic of white supremacy. The result is an evocative work of art that brings to life an era ripe for a revolution. Alexis Pauling Gums adds, What if we could offer our archives to each other like flowers, hold them in glass, heavy but transparent? What if we could show each other the journey of unknowing and remembering ourselves now? Why would we wait? With this work, Gabrielle Seville continues to model generosity, bravery, and vulnerability as core principles of Black feminist performance creativity, and living. Read it for the beauty, the black feminist references. Read it for a particular history of this time. Look for what you might be unknowing right now and what you need urgently to remember. Finally, Colleen Smith adds, This is the book I wish I'd had as an artist, as a young woman. And it's the book I'll relish in sharing now. Performance Studies has a new one for the mantle in this generous, funny, tender journey through the thicket and politic of becoming. Welcome to Between the Covers, Gabrielle Seville. Ooh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for reading that. It helped to ground me like, right, that's who I am. Well, before we, we talk about the deja vu in specific, I was hoping we could talk about performance writing or performance memoir more generally, both terms that you've used to describe your body of work. Because while it's true that 
your work has elements of memoir and elements of poetry. I think it would be inadequate to simply say your work is a hybrid of poetry and nonfiction. And, and when people think of performance in relation to poetry, they usually think of spoken word or slam poetry. But I think we're maybe talking about performance more in the theatrical sense, uh, more as a space of theater and ritual, or at least that's one way that I feel like you're speaking into. And you somehow are bringing this onto the page. So talk to us about what you mean by that term, performance writing. Well, first, I have to say that performance, when I talk about performance, I use that word as many of us do to reference like a very broad range of practices. And then when I think about what I do in the realm of performance, it's so much around an attempt to bring myself into a kind of presence, if that makes any sense. So that can be through something very, you know, sort of traditionally theatrical where it's happening in a theater on a stage. I mean, and even certain kinds of spoken word practices for me are definitely about those poets bringing themselves, their language, their words um, into a kind of presence off the page, into the stage, into the mouth, into the crowd, into the world. At the same time, performance for me, and especially when I think about performance art, for me, that's a site of two different, very different lineages. And one has to do with that kind of Western dematerialized art object, history, 1960s, 70s performance art, which I really claim because it inspired me a lot and because I feel like there needs to be a different understanding of blackness relative to that heritage. And so in my first book, Swallow the Fish, there's a whole sequence, you know, like fat black performance art, which is an attempt to kind of rethink the historiography of that performance art, that sort of idea of performance relative to art making. And that rethinking is connected to that other trajectory, which is very strong for me in performance, which does have to do with ritual. And that really comes from a kind of syncretic, syncretic, excuse me, black diasporic heritage that I feel like I get from my father who was born and raised in Haiti and came to the United States when he was 22. And so there's something around ritual embedded in the divine, um, the sacred, the spiritual, and also how those elements can be a part of everyday life through movement, through gesture, through chant, through dance, through music. So it's interesting to think about something that's on the one hand, very conceptual. And sometimes even when I think about body art in the Western history, sometimes it can feel even a little disembodied because there's so much, it's like can be very thinky sometimes, um, but there's still that part of performance for me with this other um, very black, very ritualistic part. And part of what, I was excited about when I first came to make performance art was because it solved some problems for me as a person in terms of how to reckon with my own body. And it also helped me deal with some of my impatience as a writer. So I was very much identifying as a poet, still identify as a poet and really think of my, my performances are embodied poems in a lot of ways. 
But there was this problem, especially pre-internet, where I was sending out these poems and it was taking forever to get any response. You know what I mean? It was just like, all right, you had to actually put something in an envelope and lick it and put a stamp on it and wait months and months and months and months for someone to say, yeah, that poem was kind of interesting. Can you send us more? We're not going to publish this, but, you know, we're going to send, you know, just send us something else. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I just sent you everything I have. This was many, many years ago. And I realized that I wanted to circulate my body in a different kind of way. I wanted to circulate language in a different kind of way. And I wanted another kind of gratification or another kind of contact with people. So I started to think about ways to use performance to generate and create another kind of writing. And in that sense, and so this is very kind of late 90s, early 2000s, I was thinking a lot about Matthew Barney who said that he turned to filmmaking as another way to make sculpture. And there was something about that phrase that really resonated with me because I came to understand that there was something that I was interested in with with performance and a way of being in the world and circulating body and language in the world and creating this other kind of play space or field of possibility with body and language that then could generate a different kind of writing. And for me, performance writing is the kind of writing that gets generated through a process of moving into and with writing with this understanding of and practice of performance. Well, let's stay with this a little longer, because um, when I think of Banu also, I think of someone who's a kindred spirit whose whose work also could be described, at least partially, as performance writing. Um, And and in her description of ghost gestures, I just want to read another uh, thing that she says. Um, and then ask you more. She says, the performance texts here serve as past projections, transcriptions, and scores. Yes. How do you choreograph notes so they magnetize their own columnar prehensile order like this? And and that's one additional way I I wanted to distinguish my experience of your performance writing from, say, reading a screenplay or the script of of a play when she talks about choreographing notes so that they magnetize their own order i feel like she's getting at something else that is is important and and true about your work it isn't that we're reading the blueprint for something that happens elsewhere even though these performances do actually happen elsewhere as well uh it's true that like a script that we might get something describing the staging or that follows you through the motions that you do in a performance quote unquote elsewhere. But unlike a screenplay or a script, we're getting your subjectivity, uh, the stakes of you doing the performance, the history of why this performance has come into being the rapport or lack of rapport with you unfolding in time moment by moment. And it feels like this subjective narrative or story is moving through the scaffold perhaps um, or at least that's my experience of it and I suspect this has something to do with how you place yourself as a protagonist within the time of the performance on the page Um, but either way what what comes up for you when Banu says how do you choreograph notes so they magnetize their own columnar prehensile order what comes up about performance writing as itself performance? 
Thank you so much for reading that. And, and also for pointing back to Banu, who absolutely is a performance writer and is brilliant. I mean, I'm teaching her Ban and Ban Liu in my writing and performing the self class at CalArts simply because of the way that it, she's able to do herself what I think she's observing or, or you know, very kindly um, noticing about my book, which is the way that it's not just representing or describing um, a performance. It's an attempt to make the language itself perform. I mean, there are many different poets who have who have worked, do work in that way. I mean, one of my favorite poets whom you also have had on the on the show, Doug Kearney, he's so adept at different kinds of performativity in language and in and in really playing with the vibrations that can happen between language and gesture, language and movement. Although he's really interested, I think, like in cadence and in rhythm in particular ways. I'm also very interested in, in rhythm, but I'm more interested maybe in melody and in sound. And I think that sometimes I can get into a sing-songy place where I have to be like, okay, that's enough, Gabrielle. But like my, my ear, there's something around the way that I want there's a kind of harmony that I'm interested in the language, even in something that looks like a regular paragraph. So like my hustle is that it looks like, a, sometimes it looks like a like a, an essay or a paragraph, but actually if you read it, it's just a giant poem, you know? Mm. Um, and actually paragraphs and poems, they don't need to be, they don't, I mean, they get to be the same thing. They don't have to be in opposition. Um, in terms of what Bonnie specifically said though, that I think, resonates not even just with ghost gestures, but also with the deja vu and, and with the rest of my work, that idea of choreographing the notes. So they magnetize their own order or even the word that you use scaffold. I'm so obsessed with the structure of these books <laughs> in a way that probably no one else is even paying that close attention. Uh, because they are works that are created. I mean, it's just sort of like, for me, these little fantasias or these little jewel-like moments that then get threaded together, which is how I make live performances as well. I admire so much performance artists, like even like a, a Marina Abramovich or Popel, or I mean, there are people who they'll have like one concept and then they'll just make that concept and it's amazing. And I love that, but then that's never what I do. I always bring in like a little of this, and then I add a little of that, and then I add a little of that. And it's something about the way those different moments and those different images get juxtaposed and moved in relationship to one another and creating a kind of whole that's intricate, but hopefully still organic. That's what I'm interested in. And then that's where my training as a poet really comes in, because I feel like if you pick up a volume or a collection of poems, you can pick it up, flip through it and read a poem from anywhere in the book. And often that's how people read books of poems. And yet that poet has worked so hard to create a very particular structure for that volume. So whether or not you read it in that order, that structure is really important for where even if you're flipping through it to the middle, what is in the middle comes from that perception of that order. And so there's something around that structuring being activated as not even just a container where performance happens, but as a kind of performance itself. That's very interesting to me in terms of performance memoir as a genre or performance writing as a form. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to say that the new book isn't just performance writing the way we've described it, but also includes a whole bunch of other things, uh, diary entries, revisitations, and then annotations of past work, poetry, correspondences between you and potential publishers, debates that you're having with yourself about fraught or controversial topics, yes, performances, but also debriefing after performances. Um, But one thing that unites them is this feeling that we are with you in quote-unquote real time, that we're figuring it out alongside you, that the thinking through or the performance with all the uncertainty of it is sort of being enacted on the page. Uh, And because of this sense of being in time unfolding, I wanted to talk about the way you bookend the deja vu um, because the book opens and closes with time, uh, but a different sense of time than what I've just described. The book ends with a chapter called Black Time, whose parenthetical subtitle is What Happens If We Take Our Time? But the book also opens with Black Time as well. Not only the Prince epigraph, there's joy in repetition, there's joy in repetition, there's joy in repetition. But before that, before the table of contents even, the Gwendolyn Brooks poem that opens, Black Time is Time for Chimeful Poemhood. So so because we open with and then circle back to Black Time in this book, because because perhaps this repetition of Black Time might be suggesting that Black Time involves repetition, and maybe Brooks calling poemhood chimeful suggests something of that too. Or a line later in the in that same poem that has the repetition, if there are flowers, flowers must come out to the road. Talk to us about what black time is for you and about enacting time, generally speaking, and black time, specifically speaking, in, in your written work. Oh, thank you so much for those questions. And also for lifting up the way that this book begins, both with Gwendolyn Brooks and Prince, who yeah. I think are both really important examples for me of black time, I guess, or artists who are, who were interested in and working in, in different ways, this idea of black time. Um, I think for me, what you said even earlier around in these books, me being a kind of protagonist in the sense that you're watching or experiencing me thinking through something in the moment there's something about that thinking through in the moment that feels really important, but that the deja vu is also, as you said, very much about aftermath or decompressing what has happened in a different kind of way. And I think that really is the result of, of it being after the start of the pandemic, because we're still in it, so the pandemic isn't over, but really after that first terrible arrival of the pandemic and then how that moved into the murder of George Floyd and the racial uprising and kind of start of reckoning that we're also still into. So there's something there where blackness, which has always been very central for me as an inheritance, as an identity, as an experience, but also as an aesthetic aspiration, like really trying to understand when we're talking about blackness in relation to performance, in relation to poetry, in relation to literature, that is a whole incredible wealth and treasury of a series of different literary, musical, 
movement, performance, philosophical traditions. And so when you arrive, and this was something when I was in my teens and early 20s, when you arrive and you realize on the one hand that you have inherited these things, but on the other hand, you don't really understand them. You're not sure if you're good enough to use them. You don't really know what to do. It there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of desire. There's a lot of pressure. Okay. And so I feel like my work is, is all of my work in some sense is a response to that pressure. Um, and it's also a creation of that pressure and it's, and it's resistance. And there are all these internal conversations that I'm having with different artists, both black and non-black. And I think for me, I was just actually thinking about this, David, that generation is really, really important. And I think that maybe everyone thinks this way, but I still think of myself as young. And that's something that I, that I write about in the Deja Vu. Not because I think that young is better than old, but because I often find myself feeling clueless or I find myself still learning or I realize how much I don't know and I feel wide-eyed or curious. But the reality that I'm dealing with is that I no longer am so young. And I'm marked in my thinking and my references and my ways of being by a certain generation, okay? And so one of the things that really marks my specific generation, I think, was sort of the rise of, of African-American, first of all, as a term, but African-American literature and people like Henry Louis Gates Jr. coming and really emphasizing tradition and saying we have a tradition, which is to say that we can tell a, a story that's chronological that has to do with inheritance of Black artists across time. And I think that there's something around that, even though, I mean, I was, you know, I wasn't that old, but and it wasn't like I was spouting this every day, but there was something around that I think that really has impacted me in the sense of reaching back towards you know, like, who are my Black feminist, you know, four mothers? Who, you know, how, what am I giving to other descendants? And a real sense of kind of trajectory somehow or timeline that that's been really important to me. I mean, at the beginning of my books, I, I generally start with an epigraph from like a Black woman writer who's really been important to me. In Swallow the Fish, it was Audre Lorde. In Experiments in Joy, it was Maya Angelou. You know, in the Deja Vu, here we have this Gwendolyn Brooks poem. And like something, recognizing myself as an inheritor of something very specific. And for me, that's something around Black time and a kind of time that goes across the ages and that I'm participating with in a certain way. But at the same time, I totally explode that, I hope. And that those are not the only references or the only people that have mattered to me aesthetically or that I find myself in conversation with. Or sometimes my relationship to those figures is really fraught or I have questions for them or I'm not sure or, you know, and so there's something dynamic there. So for me, on the one hand, time just as a material is extremely important um, it's extremely important in the way that it's very different in the realm of performance and in the, in the way that it is in writing. So in performance, it's all about the ephemeral and something happening in time and only being in that moment. And then once it has happened in that moment, it's over. And then with writing, there's the desire to preserve. And so you're doing something to try to stop the wages of time or to have something like a bulwark against time. And so performance writing is the intersection of those impulses. 
So that's on the first level. But then when you bring blackness into it, or maybe blackness is always in it or, or is the under undergirding element of it. I think that then you start to get into absence and what has been lost and the sense of, of repetition in both things that are happening over and over and over again. And also things that we can never know because in the diaspora, or at least in terms of the quote unquote new world, things have been lost. So what happens then for me in terms of this book, on the one hand, I'm trying to preserve something around my own coming of age. Like these books all together are part of this chronicle of performance body that I'm trying to create as like a, a massive work an autobiography series, like what Maya Angelou did or what Danny LaFerriere has done, just something that gives you this, this landscape, right? But on the other hand, there's so much loss and there's so much absence and there's so much impossibility and there's so much in which it's not linear, it's not chronological, it's, it's, um, it's about pulse or impulse. And for me, that speaks to something around the psychic experience of being black in the United States and my own experience of time in that psychic state. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. I've just said a lot of things. I don't know how much of that has all synced in for you. You can feel free to like, I can pull out some of that more, but those are some of the things that come up for me. Yeah. No, I want to ask more about repetition, not just in relationship to time, though. I think this is also in relationship to time, but also the another form of repetition in in the book and in your books at, at large are is the repetition of doubling. Yeah. Um, so we have the first chapter in the deja vu called double negatives. The second after images, even the third chapter black dreams. We could think of dreams as a second form of life, but less of a stretch is the title itself. Um, deja vu something already seen experienced again or the sense that one is experiencing it again a doubling back of time and the notion of a haunting in ghost gestures is also a doubling and a doubling across time and even the way you are revisiting old texts and then annotating them seems like this both a doubling and perhaps a haunting um though maybe the question is which which you is haunting which you mm -hmm. and, and of course all of this has the subtext of Du Bois's double consciousness. Um, but talk to us about doubling or double vision or haunting in, in, in this regard, the repetition of, of the double. So for me, both performance and writing are doubles or are about doubling. They both are about life lived twice or through the performance, through the writing you're doubling some kind of experience. And often you're doubling it in the sense that it's, it's your own experience, but you're offering it also to someone else. So that also makes it a double. Repetition feels really important, especially for the deja vu, in the way that I was trying to say something around my own experience of Black dreams and Black time, and that there's something around historically in the United States, but not just the United States. When I think about Haiti, when I think about West Africa, I mean, it's sort of like, they're the same struggles that people are having over and over and over again in different generations. So it's almost like, why am I still living my parents' <laughs> struggles? But also like, why am I still having my parents' dreams? But I mean, so there's some, there's a tension there, but then there's also 
there's a pleasure sometimes, or there's an identification, or there's a kind of collective embodiment, or there's the kind of creation of culture. I think repetition as well in terms of African-American culture has to do with that notion of the changing same. And it's both a little, the more they change, the more, the more things change, the more they stay the same in terms of social and political circumstances. But then there's also the aesthetic idea of the changing same when you think about, let's say, a spiritual. And so you would have the repetition of the first line two or three times. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long, long way from home. So there's also that repetition is, is accumulating to get you to something new. But you have to go through those, those repetitions to get to the change. Yeah. And then there's also that little... Um, French structuralist moment where you realize, but wait a minute, something, when it is repeated, it's never exactly the same. So thinking about what is the same and what is different creates an opportunity for reflection, possibility, innovation. Um, yeah. I suspect, and I, <laughs> I suspect that your book release date, February 22nd, 2022, which is two, 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 it's not a coincidence. Two, 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 oh, two, two. Yes. <laughs> not at all. Initially, they recommended two, one, two, two. And I said, no, 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 no. It's got to be two, 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 two. And they said, no, it has to be a Tuesday. But two, 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 two would be a Tuesday. Would you want that? And I said, for the deja vu, of course. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was reading, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you've probably read A Map to the Door of No Return by Dion Brand. An excellent book. Yes. Yeah. So I've been reading that coincidentally at the same time as I've been preparing for this conversation with you. And a couple of paragraphs leaped out to me in relation to your work that I was hoping to read. And here she's speaking about the peoples of the African diaspora post-slavery. Here's the first quote. There is the sense in the mind of not being here or there of no way out or in, as if the door had set up its own reflection, caught between the two we live in the diaspora, in the sea in between, imagining our ancestors stepping through these portals, one senses people stepping out into nothing, one senses a surreal space, an inexplicable space, one imagines people so stunned by their circumstances so heartbroken as to refuse reality. Our inheritance in the diaspora is to live in this inexplicable space. That space is the measure of our ancestors' step through the door toward the ship. One is caught in the few feet in between. The frame of the doorway is the only space of true existence. And then later she says, the door signifies the historical moment which colors all moments in the diaspora. It accounts for the ways we observe and are observed as people, whether it's through the lens of social injustice or the lens of human accomplishments. The door exists as an absence, a thing, in fact, which we do not know about, a place we do not know yet it exists as the ground we walk. 
Every gesture our bodies make somehow gestures toward this door. What interests me primarily is probing the door of no return as consciousness. The door casts a haunting spell on personal and collective consciousness in the diaspora. Black experience in any modern city or town in the Americas is a haunting. One enters a room and history follows. One enters a room and history precedes. History is already seated in the chair in the empty room when one arrives. Where one stands in a society seems always related to this historical experience. Where one can be observed is relative to that history. All human effort seems to emanate from this door. How do I know this? Only by self-observation. Only by looking. Only by feeling only by being a part, sitting in the room with history. I'd love to hear any thoughts this might have sparked in you, but I also wanted to read it sort of as a, a, prefer, a preface to you reading the opening pages of, of Ghost Gestures, Dakar, Black Women Dancing in Mirrors. First of all, thank you so much for reading that because I love that book. I love Dion Brand. She was one of the poets that I studied very closely when I was doing my dissertation so many years ago. And I love listening to that when she talks about that inexplicable space, that sort of measure, that that gap in between sort of the, the pier. I mean, I, and I've been on Gory Island and you stand there and you see, you just imagine, oh, or uh, and like that, what and that whole, just that distance between the spot where people stood and that gangplank that they would walk up to the ship, just that distance is the space of dias- diasporic culture. And it's so transhistorical. And so there's something around the transhistorical quality that I think is so powerful that she's pointing to. And the walking into the unknown, which turns into the knowledge of what you don't know and the reminder of that everywhere you go, which becomes a kind of haunting. And I think the connection that we might be able to hear at the very beginning between this passage or, or and uh, one connection that we might be able to hear between this passage and the beginning of ghost gestures is that idea of how do I know because I'm observing and I also can see that in the reflection of myself. And so there's a way in which we get haunted by our own reflection and we also gain knowledge or confirmation of something that we already know through a certain kind of being with, observing, being a part of and apart from certain kinds of things. So here's from the beginning of Dakar, Black women dancing in mirrors from ghost gestures. What do they see there? Dancing with their backs to the crowd, their faces absorbed in reflections. Women of Dakar dancing in mirrors, wearing tight embroidered jeans or short miniskirts with tall boots. Wearing thick lipstick, powder and blush, wearing wigs or weaves, wearing elaborate braids. Women of Dakar, so 
stunning in their beauty, their style, their dark brown skin, their touch of haughtiness. Their gestures so precise, they are almost ceremonial. A certain thrust, a powerful turn of the hip, done as if effort was no expense. And yet, that's not true. Try to do it. Try to stand there and roll your hips slowly, surely, with control, with beauty, looking only into your own eyes. And then when the song is right, when Yusu Endur starts to wail and it's 3 a.m. and everyone is finally there, gleaming, preening, steady, cool, do it more. Not necessarily faster, but deeper. Not necessarily harder, but smoother. See the women of Dakar dancing in mirrors, dip their knees open in time. See how a hand swims up, a head turns, catches a glimpse of itself somewhere else, captures a glimpse maybe of something else catches a glimpse of you, a country cousin. Umar has brought me here, says, if you came back here, you could learn Wolof just like that. And when you wear the right clothes, you could be one of us. You are already one of us. Across the water, your people were taken, but we have the same ancestors the same blood. And you could even take one of our names. My last name is Jaw. Now you are Gabrielle Jaw. Not so fast. Not so easy. That is not my name. My gestures, larger, more expressionistic. My dancing takes up more space, holds my body in its own way. The women in Dakar see themselves dancing in mirrors and they see me too. I know, because when I dance, I can't see their faces, but spy their reflections, winking, smirking, laughing back at me. I dance with Umar, but I don't dance for him. I dance for the crowd, the people on the floor. I dance for the wail and the throb of sound. I dance for these women dancing in mirrors. I try to impress them, but they pay me no mind. I dance for the mirrors to get inside reflections. I dance for these women. I want them to see me. I want their pulsing ease and belonging. I want them to see me in mirrors dancing. I want to see myself in their reflections. I dance for Black women dancing in mirrors. These women haunting, hovering, at the corner of my eye. I, I wanted you to read this, and that was amazing. I have, I, I truly have goosebumps. Um, I wanted you to read this partly because of the way you are engaging with doubleness or repetition through mirrors. Um, in both ghost gestures and the deja vu, we are with you as you move around the world, whether it be in Montreal or Detroit or in Mexico, where you travel with the Negrita doll you were gifted, which is another double. Mm -hmm. but, in all, but in all of these places, you're observing the different cities' relationship to blackness, partly by what you see, 
the art that you see, the graffiti you see, the presence or absence of actual black people, especially in places that might be putting forth blackness without the people themselves, um, but also through the way you are seen as a black woman in those spaces. And you do this in a similar way in your, in your performance. Um, and in the Deja Vu, you explore as well being a black academic in an academic space that is predominantly white. Um, so thinking back to the lines of Dion Brand, um, black experience in any modern city or town in the Americas is a haunting. One enters a room and history follows. One enters a room and history proceeds. History is already seated in the chair in the empty room when one arrives. Even when you go to the door of no return yourself to Africa, you refuse this easy offer of Omar. You are one of us. Take this name. Take this man's name. And instead, you participate in this more complex dance of mirrors with women, women who are faced away from the audience. And I guess this is where I wanted to talk about audience, because like these dancers who are dancing for themselves and each other, not the audience, there's a photo of you from a performance called Fugue that you did in Ghana that has ended up in a recent book by Lauren Fournier called Auto Theory as Feminist Practice in Art, Writing, and Criticism. I don't know the book, but I was interested in Teresa Carmody's look at the role of the photo in it. Um, this is what Carmody says. The image appears in a section exploring the history of narcissistic charges against women, more specifically feminist artists who directly incorporate their bodies and personal experiences into their work. Fournier moves from a discussion of a persistent Cartesian dualism that signals women and artists of color as either sexy, body, or smart, brain, to Sigmund Freud's contention that, quote, narcissism and femininity are integrally linked, to Simone de Beauvoir's idea that the image of a woman gazing into the mirror emblematizes her status in the world as subject-object. And within this discussion, there is Seville's image, presented without comment, in which we see the artist's body reclined, Venus-style, in the ocean's surf, her face obscured by the mirror she holds, glass-side toward the world, and an absent but imagined viewer. And then later she says, Seville holds the mirror glass side out as if to say, notice how what you see reflects your own racial and gendered subject position. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'd love to hear you talk about in relationship to audience. Because as you lay in the surf in Ghana of the Atlantic Ocean, holding a mirror that obscures your face as if you're looking into it, but instead we're looking into it, because of the way you're holding it, and you are showing us our own reflection. So in a way, as we look at you, you're asking us to look at ourselves looking at you to see what we see not about you, but about ourselves in the way that we perceive you, or at least that's the thread that I'm following from Carmody, that we aren't just with you in this book as you perform, and nor are we just part of the extended audience of the performance, but we're being implicated 
by the performance and our watching of the performance. And I guess I'm wondering if I'm reaching here or about the outward facing mirror and the Dakar women dancing facing away from the audience into mirrors, or is this some crucial part of the Seville poetics? <laughs> Ooh, okay. So I, first of all, you're not reaching in terms of something around the audience being implicated in the way that the mirror, the way that both Carmody and I would also say Fournier are, are using that image. It's saying something like what you think you see, whenever, whenever you're seeing something, you're also seeing yourself. There's also you that's being projected on whatever it is that you're seeing. And so definitely as a still from that particular performance, that is, I think, um, an effective reading there. And there's something also about maybe replicating the experience of double consciousness for some people who might never really have had that experience before or might not be aware. It's giving them a little mechanism to have some of that experience, which is, I mean, I wait, I'm, yes, wait a minute. I got to unpack that a little bit because double consciousness is always being aware of yourself being seen. You know, you, you're walking through the world you're seeing, but you're also always aware of being seen. I think that this, the, the, the outward facing mirror is seeing yourself seeing. And so it's not exactly the same, but there's, a, there's another awareness. It's that, that's the repetition, like life lived twice, seeing, you know, seeing yourself seeing. That does seem important, I think, in my performance writing, especially and in the deja vu as a book, especially because I'm aware of some of the things I'm writing about are fraught in the piece that I annotate on commemoration when I'm writing about what I wrote about before. And there are issues of sort of like gender and sexuality and language or in the essay, the palindrome essay that I write about my very <laughs> complicated experience trying to write something about Wanda Coleman's first chat book. I'm super aware that whoever is reading it is gonna have a very specific relationship to what it is that I'm talking about. And that's part of what's going on in the text. What I think is amazing about that particular image though, and I really, I need to write about that work myself because it matters so much what happened before that image and what happened after. Right. And so this is what's interesting, even in terms of something being a still, because I feel like as a still, it is a world and it has in, in that moment that's captured, it exists and has a meaning. But then as memory, um, actually, a wonderful scholar named Gladys Francis also wrote about that performance in a book that she wrote around, about that had to do with um, haunting and transgression in French, French. Caribbean, French, African, Francophone writing and performance. She was there in the audience. And so when we think about it relative to audience, it does always matter who is the audience? Who is my audience? And what does it mean for me to have work that really resonates in different ways for different people, depending upon who they are and what they've read and what they know and how they've lived and how many other books by me they've read. Um, all of those things really matter. A book that I think is so brilliant is Homey by Dennis Smith, because that is a book that very deliberately and consciously identifies, recognizes names and speaks to different audiences at the same time and makes that actually a part of the project. 
I think for me in live performance, I often will throw in different kinds of improvs that are responding to whether it's gestural, whether it's through my movement towards someone who might be in the audience, whether it's an actual vocal aside, I'm acknowledging different kinds of, of people, different, different references or things that might, might be alive in the room. In the writing, I think that's also there. It can be more subtle just in terms of intertextuality, or you can think about like a little Easter egg, if you know, like a Prince song and you recognize, you know, Jamaica Kincaid is a person who's excellent at that, where you'll be reading and you'll think, wait, is that an outcast lyric that she just like snuck in there, but you gotta know it to recognize it. So there's something around my relationship to audience, I would say overall is probably a little more expansive and nuanced and even just, you know, a kind of external projection, which would assume that someone from the outside maybe is different, that that gaze would be different than mine. I think that's there, but I think there's also something that can be, um, it can be a little more hmm, interlaced perhaps, because that performance that happened in Ghana, it was called Fugue Accra Dissolution. And it was really trying to return to the source of the great cleaving, which was of course the Atlantic ocean. And so it really was specific, like what was that ocean that I was in and how did I get there? And what was the ritual that was there? And it was a part of the Yari Yari um, organization of women writers of Africa symposium that was happening. And so the majority of the people in the audience were, you know, like global black women writers. Samia Bashir was in the audience. I mean, there were so many people who were there. You know, Jane Cortez's son, who's incredible, Donato Coleman, he was there. I mean, so what they were seeing when they saw that mirror, I mean, and there's so much with mirrors and spirit work in Black diaspora tradition, so much about um, the ancestors, so much about death and the afterlife. So there's that kind of index of the reading of the image too, that's there. Um, and it was kind of wild the way that Lauren just floated that image in there. And I, and I actually appreciated it in the sense that I was a haunting or I was a kind of return of oppressed. It felt to me like for part of the, the argument that she was making. And I think that I'm still reading her book and I think there's a lot of really interesting and intelligent reading that she's doing there. And I feel like part of what I'm doing with this whole series of performance memoirs is creating a kind of critical context around my work myself, because I feel like I'm operating at the intersection of different literary, um, artistic, and performance traditions. So I feel like I'm thrilled and excited for other people to write about this work. I, I invite that, I want that. And also, I feel like I want to arrive and share some of what my own references and things are because it is so idiosyncratic or maybe not even, maybe that's not actually the right word. It's just layered. Maybe that's what it is. And so not that many people probably would be able to clock it all, but I know what I'm trying to do at least or where it's coming from. And so I want to share that and preserve that for the future. Well, holding this desire of yours to create your own sort of critical archive, essentially, and then this other thing with this photo without commentary being dropped into somebody else's argument, 
and thinking about audience. Because when I think about this, the way you're describing the Ghana performance, it seems like an exceptionally resonant uh, connection between place, you, and audience. In that, and I'm sure that's not always the case. I'm sure you've performed in places that were where the place itself didn't speak to you, and and the audience maybe didn't either. Um, but I but I wanted to ask you about. I mean, maybe this is another thing in relation to, to your poetics, but I noticed that no matter how long or short your bio is, it almost always has the sentence, the aim of her work is to open up space. And in your books and exercises and performances, you often ask people to write about or think about what their relationship is to the word black, to the word woman, and the word performance. And you also say that the call for black feminist joy is not just for black people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're connected, but I wonder, is this somehow connected to your, your work being about opening up space or are these two dissimilar things? But I would like to hear about opening up space on its own terms, on its own, in its own merit. And then whether this other question of, all of us thinking about our relationship to black woman performance together and separately is part of that or not. Yeah. So the first part, the aim of my work is to open up space or the aim of her work, the aim of Seville's work is to open up space is so huge for me because I think that I felt so pigeonholed I felt pigeonholed intellectually. I felt pigeonholed demographically. I felt that the world had such very particular expectations about me, what I could do, who I was, and not just me, actually, just about anything. Like, what is an intellectual? Who is an intellectual? What does that look like? Who is a dancer? What does that look like? Or how does how does a dancer move? Or it just it just felt the whole world was so tight. And I and I think that some of my um, poetics really emerges from that crucible of adolescence, probably just trying to mark the difference between what I felt very viscerally and strongly as a kind of oppressive expectation or lack of expectation around my own capacities. And then the profoundly expansive and ambitious and wild and improbable dreams that I had for what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. And it took a, it took a, I'm still, I was going to say it took a while, but I'm still trying to navigate like the distinctions between the two, but I understood that just in my body, I felt tight. I felt closed. I felt boxed and that what I wanted to do was open up more space to be and to open up more, more trajectory, more landscape, more cartography, more room. I wanted to move in the world and be glamorous. I wanted to travel. I wanted to speak many languages. I wanted to study all of these different things. I wanted to study philosophy and history. And, and I wanted to, you know, I just, I just had this incredible curiosity and I felt like in order for me to pursue that, there, I needed to claim that space for myself and I wanted, but it did, but I'm saying I too much here because it wasn't even just around a kind of ego individualistic space. The I was important because I felt like I was 
fighting for survival or fighting for becoming, but it was really about the world that I wanted to be in. I want a world for all of us where there's more space for any of us to be who, who it is that we are called to be, need to be, are meant to be, and who the world really hopes and dreams that we can be in order for our own survival and thriving. That brings me even to the thing around um, Black feminist joy and who is that for? And I do really believe, and this is where maybe there is a generational, maybe multi-culti time moment that I'm having, but I do really believe that Black feminist joy is for everyone. I mean, I think it's medicine. I think it can be a tough pill to swallow, depending upon who you are, but I do think it's, <laughs> it's for everyone. But what does it mean for it to be for everyone? It doesn't mean that now it, it is no longer Black. It is no longer feminine. I mean, that's not what it means. And I think that's the negotiation I feel like in culture today. How can we really understand and respect the sources of something and then also allow for the benefit or the medicine, the nourishment of it to have a positive impact in the world? How can we do that within systems that are innately uneven and exploitative, appropriative? I mean, these are some of the, the central questions of the moment. But for me, when I think about something like the absolute urgency and necessity for all of us to claim Black feminist joy, I think about Alexis Pauling Gums, who you, who you kindly quoted earlier, when she, what she writes about an M archive, when she's like, first of all, if we think about source, if we think about human beings, if you think about where we came from, the idea that Black women would not be an understand, like uh, the actual center of this, of our understanding of humanity is, is a misunderstanding of what humanity itself should be. And so there's already been something wrong that's happened in terms of our understanding of human beingness. And that maybe an important uh, corrective would be then to move over. And what happens when you take what was at the margin and put it at the center? So that's like a bell hooks classic 1980s project, but we still haven't fully done that yet. I don't think in terms of we, in terms of Western society, culture, uh, you know, academic programs, production of knowledge. Understand? I mean, I think, I think there's been a clearly a lot more conversation, and there've been incredible voices and and writing and thinking and black study, and so much has happened. But there's still some fundamental resistance to those ideas. And so, what does it mean to think about joy as not just a feeling but a practice? That's something I'm working on still. What does it mean to think about joy as as something that um, is a choice that comes after? centuries of systemic dehumanization. That's Sadia Hartman's wayward lives, beautiful experiments. A bunch of people, what was it in them that said, I don't care if you think I'm just your domestic slave, I'm not doing it. And I'm gonna wander on the street and I'm gonna eat and drink and sing and have sex with whoever I want to. I mean, that's, there's something there for me that feels so powerful and something that I think we could all learn from. One of the questions in your Experiments in Joy workbook is how can we cultivate a radical openness? But when I think about radical openness, especially for people whose lives are more precarious and on the margins, I think of the story of Anna Kona, the indigenous queen of Haiti, whose story and downfall you've enacted in performance and whose fatal flaw 
you say in ghost gestures was her abundant hospitality, which was ultimately used against her by the conquistadors. Um, I was hoping maybe you could tell the story for us and then in light of it, talk about cultivating radical openness in the, in, in the face of, of real life threatening danger. And which certainly a, a black woman in the Americas would need to consider when considering openness. Wow. I love that you put those things together, radical openness and and hospitality as a fatal flaw, because that is a huge, huge tension, I would say, um, in at least in the United States. But I also think when I think about my Caribbean relatives or there's something about like black womanness and what you're supposed to offer and how you're supposed to serve and what you're supposed to give away to others and then what happens to you. But let's go back. And first, let's let's talk a little bit about Anakauna, who was an indigenous queen of what is now known as Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And in both Haiti and the Dominican Republic, she remains a hugely iconic figure. And specifically in Haitian literature, there are many, many, <laughs> many representations. Like I feel like part of me trying to claim my Haitian American authenticity is to do something with the figure of Anakauna because she's so important. I know Ed Weege, Dantika has a, has a young adult novel like Anacona, The Golden Flower. I mean, so, but I mean, in reality, she wasn't black, right? Um, and she, she, she was indigenous and, and yet I feel like Haitian, at least Haitians that I know, like claim her as if, you know, she's one of us because even though there was no Haiti and in fact, she had to fall and other indigenous people had to fall in order for there to be what we understand as Haiti. Um, it doesn't matter. There's a kind of iconicity there. So anyway, so Anacona was uh, was an indigenous queen of what is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And there are many different stories of what happened, but the story that I sort of used as the basis of my performance was the plot of a play by Jean Metellus, a Haitian playwright called Anacona. And in it, you know, she's this incredibly powerful, amazing queen. And the conquistadors come and they recognize like in order for them to take over, they're going to have to take her down. But she's really canny and wise. And she's sort of like, I don't want to have anything to do with these people. And, and she keeps her citadel very protected. So they come up with this idea, like, I know what we'll do. We'll say that we've talked to our queen, Isabella, and she's like, oh, one queen to another. We should join forces. You know, like we, we should just be one force, we're not gonna try to displace you in any way, but we're gonna join forces and we should have a party. We're gonna have this great celebration together and really celebrate the end of strife and this new beginning between us. So in the play, she's like, hey, you know what? That's great. They're recognizing my beauty and they're recognizing my power. So we're gonna have this, this, we're gonna have this great celebration. And so she sets out like everything to have this party. And then when the, the, Spaniards arrive, you know, they had, they're like armed to the teeth. They've got swords, they've got like axes, they've got all this stuff. And then the people who are, who are guarding the fortress, they say like, wait, what is all this? Like, what, what, what are you bringing in here? And they're like, oh no, these are our dancing attire. This is how we party. This is, you know, we're bringing this as a part of the party. They're like, oh, that's your, those are your party favors. Well, come on in. Okay. So then the, the Spaniards come on in and they slaughter everyone and then like burn the whole thing down and then they take over. And that's the play. So, I mean, that's such an, aston <laughs> that's such an astonishingly wild story 
that can be used as a parable. I mean, I just can imagine, you know, like Haitian mothers telling some version of this to their daughters, like, see, that's what happens. They say it's just a party. And next thing you know, you know, it's just this idea of like, oh, you think there's pleasure or oh, you can't really trust. And so there's this, there's something in that story that's so terrible in terms of, you know, like, why, why should you ever believe that someone could see your beauty, your majesty, your equality? Like anyone who's telling you that is just lying to you and it's just wanting, you know, there's something, it really feeds into certain kinds of protectedness or suspicion. I think that I was probably instilled with growing up in Detroit in the 1980s. Like, mm-hmm, they say all that, mm-hmm. you know, but, but the story is also really wonderful in, she sees herself as queen. She sees her own power. She's interested in, in celebration and festivity. She wants to be kind of worshiped and recognized. Um, there's something interesting in that to me, her own untainted ego, I guess, um, which is harder, harder to reach. And then of course, her downfall and that this and that it's really about her hospitality and her openness that that's that that is in the world of this story what leads to her annihilation and it's it's something that's interesting to be paired them with in the call for experiments and joy something that was collaboratively written by myself and six other extraordinary black women artists Rosamond S. King, Awilda Rodriguez-Lara, Marae Regulus, um, Warren Natasha Ogunji, Duriel E. Harris, and Kenyatta A.C. Hinkle, like we created that together. And part of what I think we're trying to do is even with the knowledge of the historical injustices that have happened for hundreds of years, to, to still take the risk and claim joy and claim the celebration, claim the party, claim the knowledge, or that joy is even just the knowledge, perhaps. It, joy isn't always fun. I mean, anybody who's raising children can tell you that. Like, joy isn't always fun, but there's something like, even with this knowledge, like what happens when we create from a place of freedom? Even if we don't think we're there, what happens if we even, even if we don't have that freedom, like what, what happens if we think about it, if we bring that framework into it, what could happen? And so trying to mobilize maybe something of what an Anacona had before colonization, before trying to, trying to get to some state that we don't, we don't have yet, but in order to get there, which is to say to get back there, we have to try, we have to imagine, we have to experiment. Well, that seems like a perfect segue from black time to black dreams uh, because black dreams. And as you mentioned, this notion of opening space is partially this dreaming big um, for yourself, but uh, it sounds like also in this collective with experiments and joy. Um, and there's many ways in which we look at dreams, unexpected ways we look at dreams in the deja vu, but I'm hoping before we talk about some of those, we could hear just a really brief section at the beginning of uh, Banana Traces. Oh. <laughs> Banana Traces. In January 2008, 
I delivered a speech about dreams at the College of St. Catherine in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'd been a professor there for eight years, landing the year before 9-11 and the start of the war in Afghanistan, still waging. I already identified as a Black woman poet and was just starting to dream into performance. I arrived with many dreams. I dreamed of connecting the dots between art and life and poetry and performance, having many kinds of lovers being an ethical slut, traveling the world, going back to Africa for the first time, improving my Creole to be less embarrassing, speaking at least as many languages as my father, publishing my translation of Jacqueline Bourget-Rosier, being well-dressed, well-groomed, well-paid, and well-loved, being in love and having someone love me back, maybe having babies, paying off my credit card debt, becoming a DJ, having my first book of poetry by 28, taking the world by storm, writing plays, writing many books, finding my people, following Josephine Baker's banana traces in Paris. Being a professor was never my dream. I figured by working at St. Kate's for a year or two, I could get my financial ducks in a row and then follow Josephine to Paris. It didn't quite work out that way. I've been listening to Gabrielle Seville read from the Deja Vu, Black Dreams and Black Time. So one of the big themes in the book is the interplay between dreams and embodied life. And there are things you spend time with on a granular level that I don't think I've really seen very often in writing. I remember when reading Brian Blanchfield's Proxies, and he went into the financials of being an adjunct writing teacher at one point and in detail. Um, and I re and realizing I couldn't think of another time someone had broken this taboo this way and just sort of laid it all out there in its specifics. There are many life conundrums that you puzzle through in this book that I think are usually left off the page, or at least the process isn't elaborated in quite the level of attention as you do here. For you have a dream, as you just read, to throw caution to the wind, go to Paris, follow in the footsteps of Josephine Baker, and yet you have real life, sober practicalities that need to be considered too. And some of the jobs you get attend to these in a very substantive way. And yet there's often the worry that you are in any given place because of the security of it or because of the inertia of the known. And one question that haunts you throughout this book is, am I in the right place? Have I been here too long? Should I be here at all? Um, and we go through some very practical problem solving with you multiple times, uh, with you in interviews, with you rejecting or accepting jobs, with you weighing the value of one thing versus another and feeling the weight of the uncertainty of that. But I wanted to talk about another extended moment like this in the book, which is when you're invited, as you mentioned earlier, to write an intro to a reissue of an out-of-print book by an iconic poet for you, Wanda Coleman, which is really about dreams coming true, but then maybe an example also of be careful what you wish for. So you say, 
have you ever wanted something so badly and then gotten it and then found it hard to hold, hard to feel good deep inside it? That was me writing an introduction to Wanda Goldman's chapbook. So talk to us about this section, which like many of the sections is one, and like your performances, we're like with you thinking in real time. But, but talk to us about this section and sort of puzzling through how you want to deal with quote unquote problematic art by artists we love and the way you enact it for us and with us. I have to talk to you about this Wanda Coleman situation because it was so intense for me because I love her so much. But first I have to go back to something with banana traces because I just have to say this book for me, The Deja Vu, is so emotionally wrenching. It ha- I mean, I, I feel like I really did lay bare all kinds of vulnerabilities and wasn't really sure if, if people would find it interesting, if people would think it was worthwhile, if I'm gonna be punished for telling the truth, if people would find it boring, if this thing about, did I take this job or did I not take this job? Did I write this essay about Wanda Coleman or didn't I write it? Like, would this matter to anyone else? It, was a, it felt like a risk in some, some level. And the stuff around the academic more, even more, more than anything, that felt like the most risky or vulnerable because there's so much privilege to even have a kind of tenure track academic job. So why are you complaining about the fact that you had one, but you feel like maybe you sold out your dreams or that whole nexus of, of um, conversation felt really intense to offer. But also I realized that I had never read anybody Michelle Michelle Wallace in the Black Woman in the the Myth of the Superhero. I think that's not quite the title, but she wrote about it. Bell Hooks talked about being depressed after she got tenure. There were a couple of texts that actually talked about the truth of being a Black woman academic, but not that many. And I thought, you know what? If this could be helpful to anyone, I'm going to do this. But just reading that out loud, I've never read that out loud before. So thank you for inviting me to do that. I was like, oh my God, I just... I've told the truth about my life, which is which is what Muriel Rukeyser says we have to do. But whoa, <laughs> <laughs> just realizing well, and then when you really get into me and Art Woolley, and am I taking this job, and what am I doing? Am I, I mean, it's just such a it's it's really the most. Uh, I'm allowing someone to really see messiness in a way, and. I guess I wanted to say that about banana traces and then what gets into the whole dream stuff and then the whole center of the book and fertility, et cetera, et cetera. Because with the Wanda Coleman piece, you really see, I saw as a writer, both my desire to be honest and candid and reveal something true around my experience with literary community, with publishing, with being invited to do something by people who weren't completely sure whether or not they really wanted me to do it. That was one dynamic because the work itself, Wanda Coleman doesn't give a shit about respectability politics. She wrote what she wanted to write. You know what I mean? Like she just really, and so that's awesome. And people say that's awesome, but then maybe if you're in an institution that receives grant funding or maybe you, you know, your own history with people, I don't, even, I don't even fully understand the full dynamic of what happened for them. 
but they offered me an opportunity to write something about somebody who I love very much, but then they started to have qualms when they really thought about what it would be like to put this work out, right? And then I started to have qualms like, well, if you asked me, but you're not sure, then what is this gonna do for me? And then Wanda's so brave, am I brave, am I not brave? And what I noticed is like, I both really wanted to write something about that kind of quandary that I was in, but the writer in me also kind of wanted to maintain certain kinds of control over that story. So the text that I wrote, it's so formalist. It's really bananas. I mean, it's, and, and it, for me, just as a writer, to create an essay sort of in the shape of a palindrome where the text that I wrote about Wanda is in the center, but it's this kind of uh, context that isn't just an introduction or isn't just an afterword, but really encircles the te- in such a way where it's like, Maybe you don't want to read this. Maybe you don't think I should have written it. I don't know, but I'm going to just walk you through the whole thing. How did it come to me? What was happening for me in my own life? How did, how, what is my relationship to Wanda? What happens if I talk to Wanda? What are some of the problematic, what's the language? What is the even issue that some people have? Is it an issue for me? I don't know. Okay, this is what I said. Now let's go backwards and work ourselves all the way. What was it like when I actually met Wanda Coleman very briefly? What was that like when we were at the, the like the black poetry party and we're all dancing together. I mean, so there was something with me as a writer, I learned something about myself where I both wanted to tell you, but I was nervous about what you would think about what I did. So my way as a writer of managing those nerves was creating these very like intricate formal um, creations, which is not something I knew that I was gonna do, but as I was writing it, that became the way for me to be able to tell you. And so that was something that I learned through writing that piece. That section is so wild. And I have more I want to ask you about it, but I got a late question also from Sawako Nakayasu. (gasps) Um, So, which is also about this section. And, and I'm just going to say a couple things or, or explore a little bit into this section and then play her questions and mine sort of this, as this omnibus and maybe it'll create a field from which you'll have more to say about it. But we go through many backs and forths with you and the editors who want you to write this. We go through many different positions that you inhabit for a time and then consider and reconsider. We go through so many different shifts as your feelings change, weighing the puzzling out of your reservations and incorporating your reservations into the intro, which we get to read, or perhaps pulling out of participating, avoiding the risk of trouble, avoiding the possibility of cancellation, but perhaps furthering the silencing of the work by a poet that you love. And even after you make a definitive decision, which feels like the right decision, after you've weighed it all, you are still haunted by the other side of the equation. And you say, reading Coleman's work humbled me and helped me recommit to what seem like opposite values. I want to proceed with courage and respect for others. I want to allow for messiness and wildness within myself and other people 
both inside and outside my communities. I want to be able to take a chance to try something new, to be bad and good, to say something that could be wrong, and to be capable of taking the blowback. And yet you have really good reasons for pulling out of the project. Mm -hmm. I feel like the um, amount of real estate you give to both sides of this in the book is actually a real, I know you're laughing, but I feel like it's this real gift. And more generally, I feel like the more time and space you give to it, and in general, the more time and space we give to thorny issues, the more I think we can allow, or this is my belief, the complexity of those issues not to be reduced. Um, So I love this extended essay if that's what it is. <laughs> and, uh, and I love that it ends with you still trying to figure it out. So I guess that's not really a question, but it's a preface, I guess, an accidental preface to what Sawako is going to ask you. Hi, Gabrielle. It's Sawako. Congratulations on your fantastic new book. Here is my question for you. It's one that you yourself claim you are still figuring out, so I hope you'll forgive me for probing nonetheless. I was fascinated by your essay called Blue Flag, where you describe your process in wrangling with the task of writing an introduction for Wanda Coleman's first poetry chapbook from 1977 with that problematic word in the title, which is Art in the Court of the Blue Fag. The introduction you ended up writing does a remarkable job of writing a 2021 introduction for a 1977 book of considering various intentions Coleman might have had in using that specific word and discussing the power and poignancy of the chapbook overall. But the set of questions that your friend Madhu posed in the midst of this deliberation, which goes, do you want to be good? Do you want to be liked? Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be free? That was the bit that lingered the longest for me. In some sense, we all want to be all of those things. You even mention in the chapter the various ways that Coleman herself chose freedom over other considerations, including a huge sum of money, according to a wild story you heard. I know that one of the aspects of your work that I find so deeply compelling is this question of freedom, of getting and being free through the practice of making art. It's not about artistic freedom per se, but about the making of art being tied to the acquisition of the freedom. I'm making an assumption here that often you are choosing freedom above all, but I know it's not so simple and depends to some degree on circumstance. I wonder if you might talk more about these choices, if they have evolved over time, or how they might apply differently to performance as opposed to writing. Is performance a space that allows for more freedom than writing? Or does writing offer different kinds of freedom? And what might it look like for you to choose the others, to be good, to be liked, or to be right? And by the way, I heard Angela Davis talking about recording the audiobook to her own 1974 autobiography, and she said that parts of it made her cringe, particularly when she saw the homophobia in herself from that time. But she felt it wouldn't be right to edit the book at this point. If anything, it served to document how much progress had been made between then and now. Oh, wow. Wow. Wow, so many amazing things that Sawako just brought up. 
I was taking a few notes just to try to hit some of them. And I, if I'm understanding her interlaced questions correctly, one of the things I think I'm hearing her ask is, where do I find or experience the most freedom, performance or writing? That's one thing that I'm hearing. And then also something about what would it mean to choose a different iteration? Like if it's about, do you wanna be free? Do you wanna be good? Do you wanna be right? Or do you wanna be free? What happens if you choose the other ones? But there's also, all right. So I feel like Sawako is a genius and people need to read all of her books because she's amazing. And it's, it's because she too is also a performance writer and she too is someone who's interested in relationships between performance and writing and recognizing the, the compliments, the complementarity between them, the way that performance and writing can constitute each other. Like in my practice, I feel like they're deeply constitutive of each other, but they also push each other in different ways. And I think a number of things. First of all, what I was trying to say earlier with the time question, which I feel like I still want to smooth out and say a little bit better, it's so generational, my relationship to freedom, A, but also to freedom within these different forms. I will say right now that I feel less free in writing or in language than I did even 10, 10 years ago because the kinds of um, punishment that can come down if you say the wrong thing, the level of social ostracism, the way that there's, so that language feels very tight right now and you have to be very, it feels to me as a writer, like I am supposed to be very careful about what I say and how I say it in a way that when I was first starting to write, that was not my experience of it at all. And so for me, I have experienced that as a loss, I will say, but also as a sharpening, or there's a kind of another kind of intelligence that I think that has been brought to language and also a way of uh, an awareness of the power of language and the, the need to be mindful and stewarding language in a particular way. So that there's something even in, in the black diasporic tradition of like nomo and the power of the word, like don't just throw some words around that you don't really mean because they have power and they have consequence, right? So I don't wanna take it to some like right-wing place where everybody should just be able to say whatever the hell they want to, because I think that that's, that, that, that's not my politics. And I will say that I have felt more constrained in recent years, um, in part because I think of my choice to pursue or continue to stay in academic jobs where there is such a kind of emphasis in this moment around um, saying things the right way. So whether or not you actually mean what you're saying, you're saying, what I mean that there's just such an there's there can be such an intense attention to semantics over action or relationship or inflection or new or nuance. That I feel like that has had not always the best effect on my creative practice, on my writing, and that performance then becomes a space of like trickster energy and play and maybe being able to do the wrong thing or, or say the wrong thing, whatever the wrong thing is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
and that what's right and wrong ends up being negotiated within the space of the performance by the people in the room that are happening at, 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 at that moment. And that's where something like a video performance of something can be very tricky. Or if you, know, if you are in a room and something is happening and then someone picks up a, a camera and then records that and then puts it on the internet, there's something about that to me that can be unfair because it can it really can be out of context in the sense that you don't really know necessarily okay sometimes you can know but you you don't always necessarily know what is happening there you can just know what it looks like or what it sounds like you don't know what it feels like you don't know what the energy is like with the people there there is there is a kind of intangible part of performance that for me can, there that kind of freedom can live which is exciting and i think that I feel blessed to have access to that way of being in the world that opens up possibilities that shouldn't exist. I mean, and that's in experiments in joy, there's a little piece around, um, I'm trying to remember the name of that, touch, don't touch. That's what it was called. And it's this idea of like, well, when I'm in Mexico and then they say that they want to touch your hair and the other young woman of color is like, aren't you so offended by that? And I'm like, I know I'm supposed to be, but in this particular context, in this moment, I'm not, but then, but then Libra that I am, I'm like, oh, but am I feeling, should I, should I feel ashamed that I'm not, am I not, am I, I'm not a good role model for this other woman of color because I don't want her to think that people can just treat her, how, you know, so it's my usual kind of self-reflexive moment, but there's something for me around the freedom that comes and actually being present in a moment and actually checking into to what I'm actually feeling and what I think or what I sense is happening versus how it is I'm supposed to be feeling and what it is that I'm supposed to be saying or doing. And so there's a lot of inside community pressure that I have felt around that alongside, you know, like white supremacy. So that's been kind of tough, um, but I still love writing. I mean, I love, I love, exploring language and trying to offer language that reflects experience. But I don't know in this particular moment, if I think of it as being a, a, a site of freedom. Well, and you also in the book, maybe a nod to this sense of it being more constricted and, and even surveilled perhaps by, by the community you, you do push open spaces where you're like, I, I, around language, like for instance, that you don't capitalize the word black and you explore that. You, so you explore why it's capitalized or why you wouldn't capitalize it. And a part of it is generational. And, um, but it does feel like you're, you're trying to um, wedge open space for your experience around these things within the deja vu. Absolutely. But you know, David, I got to tell you, I feel a little punished for that. I mean, I got, I was, you know, Kirkus put out something around the deja vu. And what is the first thing that they wrote? Gabrielle Seville refuses to capitalize the word black. I mean, I just thought like, they whoa, did? like of all of the things that you can talk about in this book. That's so random. And I'm talking about and like, and it made it seem like it's all about me being this wing nut who's just, who just only cares about my own individual experience and that the book is all about you being you. Like, it's like my nightmare. That's not yeah. at all to me what I think the deja vu is about. But it's you know not, what? Yeah. I was like, okay. It just, but it just shows you just even that little choice. That connects to the 
video clip taken out of context of a performance that might not capture the performance. And you, when you say like, maybe you feel more constricted in writing because of academia, but I, I don't think it's, I mean, I'm sure it is academia, but just social media yeah, and like sort of like the instant uh, analysis of a new poem, condemnation of a poem in real time that has been out for four hours. I mean, part of that's interesting, like being in the moment of meaning making with others in real time. I think this Kirkus example feels like they've taken like this really random video excerpt of your book um, that has nothing. I mean, in only a very minor way is your book about that at all, but it is about it in terms of opening when you, when you say about your life feeling constricted and then you trying to uh, create space that reflects who you are uh, and what you feel. Um, but it, wow, what a, what a, um, provocatively unnuanced way to to introduce your book to the world, I guess. I mean, it's about the ways that I am not in step with time and that for this particular book, which is about kind of repetition or out of stepness, I thought like of any book, the reality is that when I came out, when I came of age, this is how we wrote this. And then through political struggle, which I'm happy for, people who were not me, change the convention, the convention changed. So what happens if I don't change with that convention? What does that say about me? Does that all of a sudden mean that I'm like a maverick? Does that all of a sudden mean that I'm a wingnut or that I'm, I mean, but, but it's also like, but why does that have to mean any, why aren't there multiple times that are existing at the same time, which in fact there are? There's a kind of rigidity there that bothers me. I've, obviously that I'm even bringing it up because I mean, it was a positive review and I should be, you know, I should be thankful and I am thankful, but, but it just showed me like, whoa, like of all of the things that are happening in this book. But, it, but, but I remember the wonderful Anitra Bud, who was my editor, she said, Gabrielle, if you're gonna do this, you need to write about this because people are not gonna understand why, why are you making this choice? And so I do write really specifically and also to say, sometimes I do capitalize Black and sometimes I don't. I mean, but that I want to be in a world where there is space for people to write the way that they need to that reflects their own experience. And so I want to model that myself. But I'm going to see, I mean, this book, two, 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 we're going to see what the reception is. Or even what you said about social media. That's really what happened with the Wanda Coleman situation, because... It wasn't even about her poems. It was about the title of the book. So that there was no way for you to even refer to the project without bringing in language that some people were gonna find offensive. But that those poems could have been in that project, but it could have been called like chapbook one by Wanda Combs. No one would even have known. And I doubt that there would have been any anxiety about because you know, most people weren't even going to read the book. But if all of a sudden you're on Instagram and someone says, wait, what's the title of that? And the next thing you know, people have already made it. That was the anxiety, I believe, that the organization had, although they didn't have it when they asked me to do it. But anyway, yeah. Well, can can we hear a little bit of that chapter um, that Sawako and I are so transfixed by? Oh, sure. Have you ever wanted something so badly and then gotten it, and then found it hard to hold, hard to feel good deep inside it. That was me, writing an introduction to Wanda Coleman's chapbook. Well, not the writing so much as the sending it into the world without a clear and supported plan. 
I'd hustled hard to live my dream, to be visible enough as a Black feminist writer to be asked to offer insight about the work of another Black woman writer I was coming to love more and more. But I was wary of words getting out of control, associations with problematic values and institutions. Negotiating timelines, correctness, and authority was the thing that came along with the other thing. Still, I had wanted to do this. I still want to do this, share my words with the world and help bring more of Wanda's fullness, brilliance, and messiness to light. What can it mean to open into something different? The possibility of being someone different somewhere else in something else, especially if it's hard. What new black feminist writing could emerge? Could I navigate mountains of exposure and plunge headlong into my fears? Could I live up to Jane, Intezake, Sanya, Wanda herself? Could I turn it all into a palindrome? So what if I'm not sure how this will land, if butterflies still flutter in my brown fleshy stomach? Go ahead, caress or squeeze. Even if it's true that we bring ourselves wherever we go and we can be called out, ejected or maligned, rightfully, mercilessly, I could still aspire to be messier and wilder, just like Mama Wanda. I can be honest. I've just stayed up all night in North Carolina, away from my home, feeling the spirit of Wanda Coleman all around me. Lewis went over to his sweetie, so I had the place to myself. I burned a red hummingbird candle for love and listened to the wind brush through the trees. In a different landscape, a different time zone, with birthday love from my blood and chosen people, yes, Libras, I'm making a new home for these words. To spend more time with Wanda Coleman's poems, to plant this blue flag could reinforce my claim to the archive of Black women's creativity. If I couldn't quite shine in the press's original project, I can still try to blaze in my own glittering darkness or radiate. Looking back now, maybe this was how it was meant to be. I was on the phone with my rad theater friend, Franklin, in my SoCal apartment, where for days on end, I'd been navigating the terrifying start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Franklin was planning to move to LA and we were discussing possible plans. I guess Franklin was planning to share LA with me. Franklin is black, queer, uses they, them pronouns, and while warm and kind, always seems sharp, shrewd, and ready to renounce things in art that do not serve. I remember seeing a show in Minneapolis about their fabled death and imaginary life and reveling in the scope of their imagination. I'd been struggling with the fate of the Wanda Coleman chapbook and decided to ask their opinion. I don't know, Franklin. Wanda is amazing, but this situation is no joke and things are moving super slow. Hmm, Franklin said, making a soft sound with their tongue from the back of their throat. White institutions try to solve a problem and cause two more. We chuckled. Gabrielle, how much did they pay you for this? When I told them, I could see the look they gave me over the phone, really through the phone. Franklin said, you're going through all this for them, for that? 
And in the pause before either of us spoke again, I felt the California sun beam through the windows of my kitchen. I saw the stillness of the empty street. I heard the liberated chirps of birds outside loud as fuck during human quarantine. And it became clear to me that I'd already decided what to do. When I hung up the phone, I was driven, relieved, and unafraid. It's not a no-brainer. It's harder than it looks to be a badass Black woman writer, to be a badass writer or artist or person or reader or critic or thinker or publisher of any kind. It's especially hard to be a bad girl. You know, the right kind of bad girl, a good bad girl like Cardi B or Megan Thee Stallion, although she ended up shot in the foot, but a bad bad girl is a problem. Like Azalea Banks for 45 in 2016 or Diamond or Silk with their shtick or deeper hustle like Candace Owens. I like some bad bad like Chelsea Menace, but that's a whole different thing if you're a black woman poet. What space is there really to be a mess? put your foot in your mouth, say the wrong thing for real. Wanda wrote, quote, I notch each failure with a burn. The eyes of Tucson radio's lisp or Hollywood's hound's tooth jacket and netherworld of juke and jive a blossom, a chocolate poppy smoked black onto a needle's tip, end quote. Wanda wrote, quote, they either get too much of me or not enough, end quote. I want to contend with all that, but I'm not sure the world is ready, or if I am, for that matter. Listening to Gabrielle Seville read from The Deja Vu. We could say part of The Deja Vu is about dreams we have and get, but are different than we hope for. Some are dreams we have, but we aren't sure we should pursue. Or dreams we don't pursue, but still wonder about and still haunt us. But some of the book is about dreams that become impossibilities. And I'm thinking of the pulmonary embolism you have coming back from Paris, the heavy blood loss from fibroids, and ultimately your hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. And something that ultimately, that ultimately becomes part of your performance art, a collaborative piece with Mo Lionel that you explore in the Deja Vu. But it also brings us back to both time and black time, I think, as this occurs in a chapter that appears right before the chapter Black Time, a chapter called After the End, which reminds me again of Dion Brand's notion of the door of no return. Um, and that book of hers, which I think is partly about what you do after the end. Um, what do we do? How do we live? How do we dream? What do we dream after a door is closed for good? Um, and in this case, um, the dream of potentially having your own children. Um, can you talk about after the end, the the performance for you and the chapter in light of in light of this? I think that was really well said, David, too, in terms of the different kinds of dreams and specifically in like what happens 
after the end of a dream? How, you know, maybe a dream that you weren't, you didn't even know it was a dream until after it was over and you couldn't, you couldn't have it anymore. Um, after the end was an incredibly therapeutic and amazing experience for me, for people who have read um, Experiments in Joy, you see Malina is a, it was a kind of, a, is a lover of mine who became, who's turned into a really great friend. Um, and so in Experiments in Joy, you kind of go through our breakup or our what, you know, like our whatever. Um, and then, and after the end, I mean, I think the whole sort of dossier performance begins where he sends me a text message and it's kind of like, do you want to do this piece in Queertopia with me? I mean, and really it was so small. And I just said, sure, let's just do it. And, and we weren't even sure what it was going to be, but both of us were dealing with some significant grief and his partner had died unexpectedly and I was still grappling with the aftermath of, of that hysterectomy. And for me especially, there was an idea of ambiguous loss because again, what, is you, what does it mean to lose something that you never had? And that for me, as you, as you just gestured towards, is very connected to my experience of black diaspora or even in ghost gestures, you know, how do you return to a place where you've never been? that kind of ambiguity, that kind of loss of potentiality or the sense of, I mean, my sister just said something recently to me like, wow, I, she's a physician and she does global health. She's a pediatrician and she has done significant work in Ghana and, and in, worked with at Doctors Without Borders, et cetera. But she always says like, well, what if, what if there had not been the transatlantic slave trade? What would be the things that we would know? What would be the rituals or the songs or the dance? You know, and there's a real African-American romanticization that's happening there, but there is that sense like, I look at people around me who have small children during the pandemic, and that is not something right now that I, that I wished I was dealing with personally. And so I know it's, it's hard. And yet when that was taken away, there was so much loss and I didn't really know what to do with it. And so the opportunity to bring some of those complicated feelings into performance with a person that I profoundly trusted and who I knew loved me and that I loved and that we could hold each other in our different, different grief and go through a process. We went to like an extended, extended stay hotel for a weekend and we did a lot of collaborative writing and moving together just to start to build the bones of the piece. And then we put it on its feet at, in the heart of the beast in Minneapolis through the Queertopia Festival and we made the work. And there was such a charge of energy that moved through me. It really, really um, helped me connect with a full range of feelings around that loss and also around what could come next. Well, there is a line from that section that is one of the most memorable lines in the book to me. It was what happens when you lose a part of yourself, a question about having your uterus removed and someone answering more of you fills the space, which is so counterintuitive, to, but actually is is factually true, and but to think about the physical 
aspect more of you fills the space when something is removed but carrying that to the figurative level that's wild to think about what happens when you lose a part of yourself more of you fills the space um would you mind if I actually read this little piece because it is one of my favorites and sure and then this is and this is even um Mo who came and this is some of his language and so this is from after the end uh Mo and Gabrielle circle the rope and move around what they've made a ritual make a bed with the grass make a grave make something beautiful Mo asks how do you end something that never stops Gab, how do you move after the end? Mo, you asked what happens when the organ comes out. Gab, does everything fill in? Mo, yes. And what fills in is you. More you. Yeah. So I love great. that. Me too. I'm not going to forget that. I love this chapter after the end, mm, which, feels, which feels connected to your, obviously, as we've talked about very deeply to your personal story and to the black diaspora, but also around ways our notions of the future are changing because of other things like climate change and how more and more people are coming to a place of great skepticism about narratives of progress. Um, one of the things in this chapter that feels to me like it unites so many of these things is your, your participation in the creation of a thousand year plan for a public dance practice called Don't You Feel It Too. Um, and in this exploration, you explore the actual experience of being in it in the now, but you also explore what the, what the questions are it raises. You bring up how a friend of yours from Iceland says, our age doesn't span from our birth to our death, but from our grandfather's birth to our grandson's death. But this project is looking forward across 40 or 50 generations, and you ask questions like, how can we capture the time of our lives, our movements through generations into the future, at or beyond the edge of our imagining, and how dare we dance for a thousand more years? I guess I wondered if you could speak into these questions a little more now, why it is important to entertain an art practice that's projected both backwards and forwards beyond the delimited lifespan of you as an individual and what you feel like a, a thousand year practice does to you and to your practice. Those questions are so important, I think, in this moment where it feels so apocalyptic. It feels like, I mean, are we at the end of the world or what? It real so the idea of imagining a thousand years into the future. Some people are like, can can we even imagine a thousand days into the future? I mean, it just is, it has felt so dire. So I guess the first response I would have, even in terms of what it means to imagine a creative practice that far ahead, it means that that's a flex of hope. That's a practice of hope that's happening, and you want it to be a hope again, just like Black Joy, grounded in history, grounded in reality, it's not delusion. You're aware of climate catastrophe. You're aware that the United States is in an incredibly precarious situation, but you don't allow that to overwhelm your own sense of imagination, possibility, and making. So that's one thing. 
But I will admit that that year, a thousand, that's that time span for me was initially daunting. That writing came out of a beautiful sort of collaboration with Marcus Young, the founder of that practice, Don't You Feel It Too? And when he first invited me into the opportunity to kind of think through, you know, like what would be a, you know, a plan for Don't You Feel It Too in the future, his initial number was 100 years. Like, I, you know, I want to do a 100-year plan. Oh, 100 years, that's just a couple generations or so. That's, you know, like, we could do that. That's fine. That's like, you know. But then as we started working on it one day, he came out, he said, no, 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 100 is not long enough. In fact, that's, it, it, it's too practical or it's too easy to kind of imagine 100. In order for us to really work together and then, you know, we had visioning with people who were members of the, you know, the group who had been dancing all the time and asking like a, a thousand years from now, what do you think a city will even be? So it just became an opportunity to imagine something together, imagine the space, imagine where would you ideally want to dance? Who, you know, how would you want people to dance together? What would that look like? And it became something joyful and not just um, reflecting on the, terrible city regulations and gentrification and the fact that we have diminishing public space, it was like, okay, that's all true. And so based on our history and understanding of the past, really allowing ourselves to move forward, what could it look like? And so going through a process of conversation and movement, um, I was able to then start generating writing that was documenting how the practice came to be, what was happening in the moment, and then where it would go. And it felt important as well that it was an embodied practice. And so it's not a choreography. I mean, there are beautiful folk dances and cultural dances that have, that have come down where part of the, what's holding it is the steps, the actual movements. What's important with the creative practice of Don't You Feel It Too is that people do it, not exactly what the steps are that they're doing, but that there's a, there's a commitment to going out into a public space and just dancing your, your ridiculousness, your hope, your vulnerability, and just doing that. And as a way to... I think bring a certain kind of magic actually into the public space and to practice a certain kind of bravery and vulnerability in your own life. Mm. Yeah. Well, when I think of the thousand year project, it also makes me think of the notion of the seventh generation, the Iroquois Confederacy and all the various contemporary ways that ecological thinking is trying to decenter human frames of mind, like Richard Powers with the overstory, mm -hmm. which is entertaining different non-human points of view and sensibilities. Those sorts of works have moved into the mainstream, I think, in a big way. And, and, and you even reached toward this with a panel you were on called Troubling the Animal Human Eye. Um, but you connect this question not just to the human non-human interface, you, you very much bring in race and specifically blackness into the question when noticing how your black students were arriving to class, listless, lethargic, quiet, reserved. You said you were, quote, dismayed at how dead their energy often felt, how abducted, disembodied. And you say, so many of my 
black women college students seemed body snatched, sapped, depleted, guarded, evacuated in a kind of a freeze, at least within white institutions. And I wondered, is this how it happened? The end of humanness, the end of the world. And of course, there's a long history of black people, as you point out in this piece, being put lower on the rungs of evolution as beasts of burden. Um, and it makes me think that perhaps you're saying that shifting time frames from the time frames of a human life within a narrative, within projects, not only decenters the human and decenters the individual human, it feels like it centers the collective and centers centers those whose humanity isn't a given. So maybe this returns us back to bell hooks and moving the margin to the center. But when you say things like, as a professor, I set my own pedagogical standard of the human, mm. I'd love to hear more about that. A lot of this book is is dealing with some of these anxieties and this my own anxieties in this moment and the specific anxiety that I have is around being complicit in dehumanizing processes through my participation in higher education. And that is a profoundly painful thing for me to say because I love to teach. I'm the child of two teachers. I believe in teaching and I, I, for a long time, would say that I believe in education, but some of the processes of higher education, not high, I mean, in high, even that idea, higher education, what is that? But processes of education from K through 12 to beyond, uh, and as neoliberalism has made it even more intense, I worry that I'm, you know, like doing the work of the panopticon or something. I just, I have real anxiety about that. And I think that that particular um, quote that you're reading from my piece, Pony Swimmer Freeze, is really at that intersection where I'm looking at my students whom I loved and I'm seeing that they're not doing well. And I'm wondering, is there something about the fact that they're here that's contributing to them not doing well? That's, that's a big question. And then I think then, okay, on the one hand, I'm trying to open up a space as part of my whole project. You know, the aim of my work is to open up space. And in this class, opening up a space to bring in different kinds of voices, bring in different kinds of experiences, offer foster opportunities to claim voice and, you know, express through writing, through performance, through other means, experience. So I feel like, okay, I'm on the side of the angels here. I, this is liberatory, what we're doing. But at the same time, I also recognize I too carry my own pedagogical standard of the human. And even if I think that that standard is more expansive, I have to really take a step back and investigate what, what is that? What am I carrying? What are the expectations? Is it about practicality? Is it about you know, a, a notion of preparation? Someone told me that Adrienne Marie Brown said something, which I, I hope it's, I mean, I believe it's probably her, but I don't know for sure because someone told me this, but this idea of less preparation, more presence. Mm. And I think about that because on the one hand, I feel like, you know, it's important to be impeccably prepared so that you can actually throw the preparation away and be, I and mean, that's sort of like a performance idea, or especially an acting idea. But there's also so like, what would it mean to just be with one, really show up and be together. How could learning come from that? 
But then what would it really mean to show up in that? How would we all have to show up in that? That would be really different than how I think school has, has sort of socialized us to be. So being a good student is not about necessarily being fully present. It's right. about attendance or something, but attendance and presence aren't the same thing. So those are some of the questions that I was interested in and in looking towards um, Alexis Pauline Gomes' M archive becomes a big important text for me there in, in conversation with Ntozake Shange because that idea of pony swimmer freeze is something that's coming out of her for colored girls who have considered suicide, which is a really vibrant text. And I also got to lift up Brenda Ejima who was the one that, that assembled that panel. And I think that her thinking about beingness and especially being beyond the human along with Janice Lee, along with Song Patel. I mean, these are these incredible people who are, are further along than I am for sure in terms of really leveling the playing field between, you know, non, you know, humans and other animals, right? And saying that this is all around beingness. That for me is new because I've, I think that I, growing up, really had a perception that that Black women were, were seen as animals. And so there was a desire to not then embrace animalness, but to say like, no, we really are humans and to embrace the idea of humans being above animals. And so there's some kind of unlearning. I feel like I have had to be, have had to engage and I'm still engaging in. Yeah. Well, before we end, I, I, I want to touch on another element of your work. We've, we've touched a little bit, especially at the beginning on the theatrical and the ritualistic, but your work also moves into the world of magic or divination too. I think, um, I think of tarot for instance, but I also think of seances, which makes me think of you pointing out that we are quite literally the dreams of our ancestors. So in other words, seances connecting with our ancestors feels like another tool to change how we look at time. Um, I think of your lines from an earlier book. To swallow the fish, you had to have something more than a reason. In a way, you had to reject reason itself. You had to have spirit, and perhaps spirits, and the spirits too. Talk, talk to us about magic and divination and, and ritual. Ooh, all of those things are very deeply a part of my core values or beliefs or aspiration, I think. And I, I mean, in that section too, to swallow the fish, you have to have spirit and spirits and maybe the spirit too. All of those things, like that kind of, um, everything that that Cartesian dialectic cut out, you know what I mean? It's sort of like that mind, body, spirit, part, the part that's excessive, that the part that's invisible, the part that's palpable, the part that um, is irrational and intuitive. I think there's something around the role of intuition. At the beginning of a, a part of the Deja Vu, Wild Beauty, there's, a, there's like a, an invitation for a visualization that came from Yelpa Lumpus in their session in, at a movement research melt workshop, and it was called Honing Intuition. And I always remember the power of that workshop because it was sort of like intuition is the thing inside of you that guides, that connects, 
that that whispers or sometimes shouts. And it's something that often in quote unquote civilized society gets tamped down or gets shifted. And what I think I'm interested in, in both writing and performance is finding ways to amplify or reconnect with some of that intuition because that's where magic happens. That's where possibility happens. Or even if you don't want to be too woo-woo, if you want to take it back to Lucretius or someone and you just go to on the nature of being, that's the swerve. That's the thing that allows for the unexpected thing. That's free will. That's choice. So even when it seems as if it's all divine or fated, actually, that's saying that something different than what you actually might expect could happen. And so that for me, there's hope and possibility there. That's where there's freedom. Um, And I guess I would also say that for me, that's very black somehow. Like, what is it that you have a bunch of people in the new world, at least who were subjugated and yet they managed to create all these, how did that happen? That's so incongruous and yet it did and it does. So for me, there's something that feels um, powerful, hopeful, joyful um, in this realm of the non-rational and the ritualistic. How would you feel about going out with a reading of Sphericity? Oh, sure. Sphericity. Begin with flatness. Make a line. Now turn the line into a square. Now turn the square into a circle. Now turn the circle into a sphere. Now turn the sphere to a globe. Now turn the globe into a world. Now turn the world into a spiral. Now turn the spiral into a shell. Welcome to black time. Reacting to an earthquake in Haiti, rolling into a mound of dirt, holding a shovel over my face, tangling myself up in paper from cash register rolls, walking back into Black Atlantic, releasing myself in waves, submerging, trying to dissolve, holding a mirror over my face, confronting history and reflecting sky. Then years later, or maybe centuries now, returning to a mound of dirt, encircled by a hundred foot extension cord. This is a power line coiling around my feet, walking and tracing the line, charging into past and future, holding a shell in my hands. Holding this shell, I hold a spiral of black time within a spiral of black time, repeating and changing, reckoning and grieving, resurfacing and harnessing, regenerating power. Black time is not flat. 
is multi-directional, is multimodal, is global, is diasporic, is dispersed, is jam-packed, is overextended, is can I call you back, is I'm not always there when you call, is I'm always on time, is early is on time, is on time is late, is right and right and right on time. Is day after day, is the changing same, is taking a long time, is at the same time, is taking twice as much time, is being twice as good to get half as much time, is double consciousness and double time, is aftermath and aftershocks, is aspiration, is hurry up and wait. One step forward, two steps back, is back to life back to reality, is go back and fetch it, is flop and drop, is off the clock, is Flavor Flav's clocks, is maybe Flavor Flav's teeth, is how long it takes for Afrosheen to come out the nozzle, is how long it takes for the hot comb to heat, is how long it took you to grow that hair, is how long it takes for the hair to grow back, is how long it takes to bargain at the market, is how long it would take to forgive the debt, is how long it would take for lotion to fix my ash, is never ending is this pandemic is taking a long time. Is what we make, not what we have. Is what happens if we take our time. Is what happens when time is back. Is flashbacks and flash forwards. Is time and time again. Is curtailed and controlled. Is, cut, is cutbacks and numbers. Is cut back and devalued. Is cut, cut down and controlled. Is feared and restrained, is gone too soon, is resting in power, is rising in power, is resurgent, is cyclical, is divination, is divine, is sphericity, is all the time, is seeping and oozing, is the deja vu, is what happened before, is what's happening now, is on and off the page, is embodied performance, is mobilized through body, and breath. This is a score. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. You have arrived into blackness of inner and outer space. You are not settling here, mind you. That would require permission. You are simply inhaling and exhaling where you are. Extend your limbs, allow your neck to roll in all directions. Allow vibration, landscape, scale, feel those things moving in your body through specific parts of your body. It could be your hands, your tongue, your head, your foot, 
your fingertips. This could change as you go. Allow your moving to revolve thought. Allow your thought to span time. Consider what has happened here for you. Consider what is happening now. Consider your body and your work. What is flat? What is spherical? What spirals? What shells? What has crystallized or emerged? What has subsided or closed? How have you marked your own time or your people? This is a portal. As a Black feminist performance artist, my practice has to be about claiming and wallowing in Black time, stretching my body across timelines, bloodlines, power lines, holding the shell, unearthing, and regrounding, channeling generations. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Gabrielle. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading my work so closely and with such care. We've been talking today to the performance writer and performer, Gabrielle Seville, about the Deja Vu, Black Dreams and Black Time from Coffeehouse Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Gabrielle Seville's work can be found at gabriellesevilleartist.com. For the bonus audio, Gabrielle adds a discussion of and reading of one of Wanda Coleman's American sonnets. This joins bonus audio from Nikki Finney, Jory Graham, Natalie Diaz, Alice Oswald, Rosemary Waldrop, Ted Chang, Ross Gay, N.K. Jemison, Laylee Long Soldier, Arthur Z, and many others. You can find out more about subscribing to the bonus audio and the other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. 
and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.